Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Praise God. I've been uh, sharing for, for a while now out of um, the book of First Kings from the life of, of Elijah. And um, this morning's one will probably be the second last one. Elijah is, is a... I, I love Elijah because... He's such a powerful man of God, and he does such amazing things. If you just, if you just think about um, the multiple, multiplication of the bread and the oil, you know, in that that story with the the, the widow of Zarephath, if you think on the on him praying and calling down fire on Mount Carmel, um, and and praying, and then it rains um, of of you know so boldly confronting the the evil king Ahab, the king of of Israel, is just such an amazing. Um, man of God, uh, but also the Bible, even though it presents him as this powerful man of faith, it, it also very realistic in terms of how it presents him and shows all his flaws and weaknesses. You know, it shows him warts and all. You know, so on the one hand, I mean, and it's it's interesting to me. All the heroes of the Bible are like that. They these these amazing men and women, powerful in faith, really trusting God, often brave and hero- heroic and fearless. But often also weak and and fearful, and and um, sinful even, and 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 I like that about the the way the Bible presents Elijah. You know, he's he's inspiring on the one hand, um, because he's so courageous and faith, and, and he has such strong faith. But he's also encouraging on the other hand because he's weak, and he has mistakes. You know, he's he's not um, he's not perfect. Um, and um, uh, this morning I'm just going to read from First uh, King, Kings 19, verse 8 to 18, a few verses. And, you know, like Elijah in this passage, we tend to overestimate the importance of our work and contribution and underestimate the importance or compare to the importance of God's contrib- work and contribution. Um, and when we do... We end up in the same situation that Elijah ended up in in, in this portion of the, of the account. He was discouraged. So like Elijah, we tend to miss the relationship between our work and God's work. And then we tend to feel alone and think we are alone. Because we miss what God's doing in us and through us and, and, and amongst us even. So let's read um, 1 Kings 19. The, the verses up there. It says, So Elijah got up. And ate and drank. This is when he was in the desert and the, the angel um, provided food for him. He says, it says, strengthened by that meal, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he, he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, there he was in a cave and spent the night. And, and last Sunday, I think I was drawing the parallels between Moses and Elijah. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, Elijah traveled 40 days and 40 nights to get to the mountain, which was the same mountain, Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Sinai, where Moses um, received the covenant. And in, um, in, in the account of Moses, God hides Moses in the cleft of a rock so that God can pass by him and reveal himself to Moses. And, and God does pretty much the same with Elijah here. Yeah. Then verse 11 says, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The same, exactly the same words as with Moses. 
Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The old King James Version says a still small voice. When Elijah heard it, in other words, heard the whisper, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazahel, king over Aram, that's Syria, king over Syria, also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, as your, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elijah will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I, have, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray this morning that you'll instruct us and encourage us through your word and through your spirit in Jesus' name. So, I just want to discuss this. The, the, the phrase that stood out to me was that little phrase where, where Elijah says, I am the only one left. I am the only one left. And... Um, I think many people, many men and women of God who have been faithfully serving God, who have been passionate for God and, and really um, calling God's people back to faithfulness have at times felt like that. I'm the only one left. Sometimes they, they look around themselves and they see very little response, very little positive response rather to, to, to what they're doing. And I just want to discuss this passage under, under th- uh, three headings. Elijah thought he was the only one left, but by God's grace, he wasn't the only one left. That's what God says in the last verse, I've, I reserve for myself. And God's grace depends on the only one left. So let's, let's go with that. Uh, Elijah thought he was the only one left. Elijah claims he's been very zealous for the Lord, unlike Israel, who have been unfaithful to the Lord. So he claims, I've been really faithful. I've been very zealous for the Lord. But Israel, they'd be unfaithful. And you can see that contrast in what he says. You know, I've been very zealous for the Lord, but Israel has rejected the covenant, broken down the altars, and killed the prophets. And um, it's, it's interesting. He, he mentions three ways in which Israel have let God down. First, he says, Israel have rejected your covenant. And covenant is a public permanent commitment between two parties which actually make those two parties family the best example we have in our modern times i mean covenant is mostly lost when we make um, deals nowadays in in the olden days they would have made covenants nowadays we make contracts we sort of just sign the contract but in those days they made a covenant so if you wanted to do a business deal or buy or something or go into business with someone or get married or something you made a covenant and and you actually um, killed animals cut them into put them in pieces and you walk through the pieces and you pointed at them and, and this was sort of the 
the part of the covenant. You said, may the Lord do this to me and more if I break the terms of the covenant. So you had all kinds of things, the terms of the covenant. Obviously, you know, people would be less likely than they are today to break contracts if you did it like that. You know, and like David and, and Jonathan, you'd actually sometimes make an incision and, and mix blood and then you'd rub ash or, and, and sand ground into the wound so it makes a permanent scar so that, um, you know, you can be reminded of the covenant. The, the wedding ring, for instance, fulfills that function, in a sense, of being e- equivalent to the scar that, of the covenant, a reminder, a physical, observable reminder of the covenant. Um, and it says here, Israel, uh, Elijah says, Israel have rejected your covenant. In other words, in a sense, if you think of, of marriage, where you extend kinship, because that's what covenant is, it's extended kinship. You make someone your kin, your family, who wasn't, hopefully, before that, your family. <laughs> okay? So, so when, when a couple gets married, you know, um, they, they share the same surname and so on, they become family. And Elijah says, God, Israel has rejected your covenant. In other words, they have committed spiritual adultery, as it were. They've rejected the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship that you've offered them. And they've, they've made this permanent and public commitment to you as their spiritual husband, but now they've turned away from it. They've rejected you as their spiritual husband, and they've now turned to other husbands, Baal in this case, other gods. Um, and the reason for that the reason why people break covenant in general, like marriage covenant, and why people break covenant with God is always the same. Because they change the relationship in their heads and in their hearts from a covenant relationship to a commercial relationship. A covenant relationship which is unconditional, I'm in this for better or for worse, for sickness, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's what, often what we say amongst others in, when we make marriage vows to one another. That's an unconditional commitment. In other words, even when this relationship doesn't benefit me, for better or for worse, sickness and in health, I'm still going to stick in this relationship. That's covenant. Commercial relationship is I'm in it for what's in it for me. I'm in it for what it benefits me. And I'm always weighing up the cost-benefit ratio. If, if, as long as the benefit is greater than the cost, I'm in it. I'm staying in it. As long as the benefit, uh, this marriage benefits me more than it costs me, I'll stay in it. But as soon as the cost starts to outweigh the benefit, I'm out. And that's what people do with God as well. Start looking at the cost-benefit ratio, turn it from a covenant relationship into a commercial relationship and say, well, this benefit, this, this relationship's not benefiting me as much as it's costing me. So I'm out of here. And that's what the Israelites did. Not knowing that, ironically, in this covenant relationship, Israel then, as with us today, they were the only party in this covenant that was benefiting. God wasn't benefiting from the relationship all along. It's not like God needs our service or needs our worship or needs anything from us. He needs nothing from us. It was out of his goodness and his love that he offered this marriage, covenant-like marriage relationship to us. It's like, you know, some other very rich, very uh, well-esteemed, highly-esteemed um, 
a powerful nobleman who's a ruler and who's rich, who has everything he needs, who offers the opportunity for a dirt poor prostitute who has nothing, who has no standing in society to, to marry him. He doesn't benefit from it. Not socially. She doesn't give him in the physical anything he doesn't already have. And anything that he can't get, I almost want to say better, somewhere else. And God does the same with us. He, we are the only ones who benefit from this covenant relationship with him. And yet so often we are the only ones, well, always, when the covenant is broken, we are the only ones who break it. Which is ironic. We're the only ones who benefit, and yet we are the only ones who, who break it. And the other thing I want you to notice, not only that, that uh, this relationship is, is only uh, benefits us, but that it only benefits us, that it, that it benefits us more than any other relationship that we have. There's no other relationship that you can get into that will benefit you as much as your relationship with God, the one who created you, the one who understands you more than anyone else does, the one who knows you into the very depths of your heart, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and who loves you more than anyone has ever loved you or ever will. This relationship benefits us. And it, it was the same for Israel, and yet they rejected this covenant. Um, it says that they've broken down his altars. You know, what does that mean? Not only that they've rejected the covenant relationship, this beneficial covenant relationship that they've made a public commitment to, but they've, God knew that that would happen. God knew that his people would always let him down. And that's why he made altars and sacrifices to deal with our guilt when we do let him down. But now they've rejected even that. So in other words, God has said, I know you're going to let me down. I know you're going to fail me. But here is a sacrificial system, a system of atoning sacrifices so that when you do break the covenant in which you said, may this be done to me, you know, the animals that have been slaughtered and whose blood has been shed, may this be done to me and worse if I break the covenant. I've made a way so that when you do break the covenant, that doesn't have to happen to you. Your blood doesn't have to be shed. But so that an animal sacrifice's blood can be shed in your place. And yet they've rejected all of that as well. They've broken down those altars. Not only have they rejected the relationship, they've rejected the means by which the relationship can be fixed. Um, and then it says they've killed the prophets with a sword. In other words, they've rejected or at least silenced God's word because the prophets represents God's way of speaking to us. So God's way of calling them back from all of that, they've sort of said, no, we don't want to hear it. God, we don't want to hear anything from you. We don't want to hear you calling us back and wooing us back and telling us you want to love us. We don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. We can't hear you, you know. <laughs> They've cut off communication with God. And Elijah thought that everyone else had been unfaithful in these ways and that God could now work only through him. But God was still working elsewhere. Um, and <clears throat> in this, we're going to see a bit later, God, uh, Elijah severely underestimates or overestimates his own faithfulness and underestimates God's faithfulness. He overestimates the work that he does, the contribution that he makes, and underestimates what God does. So, Elijah thought he was the only one left, but by God's grace, he was not the only one left. 
Um, because Elijah um, overestimated his contribution and underestimated God's, he thought that uh, God's work and God's people were about to come to an end. But what I want you to notice is that God's people are never in danger of disappearing from the earth because they depend more on God's work than on ours. You see, and that's what Eli- the mistake Elijah made. He, he thought that God's people, he, he thought that, you know, I'm the last one left, you know. Everyone else has been unfaithful. Everyone else has turned away from the covenant, from the word of God, etc. I'm the last one left. God's lineage and God's work in the earth is going to come to an end. It's going to die out. Judaism is going to die out. Uh, you know, if Elijah was right, then Judaism would have died out and Christianity would never have been born. But the mistake he made was to think that God's work in the earth depended wholly on him. Or actually more on him than on God. Okay? So, um, God corrects that. And he says in in verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knee have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouth have not kissed him. And we're going to see just now that the, that the New Testament actually quotes this. But the interesting thing for me is, and, and the, the translation he obscures this a bit, I just went to check the tense because I've seen different translations translated differently. And even the translation in, in the New Testament in, in Romans 11, as you're going to see just now, also translates it differently. It doesn't say, I reserve for myself. It says, I have reserved for myself. And I went to check, and as far as I can see, the, the verb there is in the perfect tense. It is a completed action. It's not a, just a present action or present continuous action. It's a completed action. It's something God has already done. He's saying, I have reserved 7,000. And how have I reserved them? Two ways. They've not bowed the knee to Baal. They're not serving Baal. They're not bowing, they haven't bowed the knee to him as um, Lord. And they have not kissed him. They've not worshipped him. In other words, this is, <laughs> this is quite intense if you really think about this and, and, and you really think about the implications of this because this, that means that everyone who starts to and continues to only bow the knee to God and only worship Him, they only do that. Why? Because God is reserving them. Because, in other words, they work for God in service and worship because God is already working in them. You see, the only way we can legitimately work for God is if He first works in us. There's always a work of God in us that precedes our work of God uh, for God. So there's always the work in before there's the work for. Always. And that's why God's work will never end in the earth. Because God's continuously. That's what the still small voice was all about. How does God reserve? How does God reserve for himself a faithful people? Through the still small voice in their hearts by which he speaks. And makes them faithful and keeps them faithful. And we see that in church history. I mean, the church has always been in danger of extinction. It's been this despised sect of Judaism from the beginning where the Jews themselves tried to persecute and eradicate the church. Not only did they fail to do that, but the church exploded in the first century. 
And many of the people, both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogues in the first century, turned to Jesus and said, we're going to remain Jews, but we acknowledge that Jesus is our Jewish Messiah. And the Gentiles were saying, well, we see now that even though we are not Jews, Jesus is the Messiah of the whole world. And they turned in mass so that, you know, at a, I think it was about... Um, 90, 90 AD, which is 60 years after the resurrection, it's said that more than 80% of Carthage, a city in North Africa, had become Christian in 60 years. And that was not uncommon. That was not the, the, the exception. That was the rule, you know. Um, so much so that by 300, after the conversion of um, Constantine, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, I think they handled that terribly because they tried to force after that people to become Christian, and that doesn't work. Christianity is not something you can force on anyone. Christianity is something where God has to work in your heart, speak through His still small voice in your heart, and make you want to bow down to Him and kiss Him, worship Him. You, You cannot force it on anyone. And I think that's also part of Elijah's problem. I think he wanted to do that. But, I mean, you, you see all kinds of examples like that. Um, in, uh, under Paul, uh, Christianity grew massively in, in, in Asia Minor. Massive persecution arose after that. Um, and nowadays, modern, Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. There are hardly any churches left in modern-day Turkey. It's like the church has gone extinct. But before that happened, the church went over into Europe, blossomed in Europe. But then there was a massive apostasy in, in Europe, all the wars and all kinds of things happened, and Christianity declined seriously in, in Europe, so much so that in, in many, many European countries you have less than 1% Christians nowadays. That's quite scary. And a lot of people, when they saw the decline starting, they're saying, oh, this is the end of Christianity, you know. Christianity is going to die, you know. The center of, of gravity of Christianity is in Europe, and Christianity is dying out in Europe. Christianity is something of the past. It's just one of those other religions. And that would have been true if it depended mostly on our work rather than on God's work. But you see in the last couple of hundred and thousands years, the center of gravity moving first more west as Christianity um, exploded in the United States and then south and then east. (laughs) Now the center of gravity, the geographical center of, of gravity of Christianity where there are as many Christians north, south, east and west is actually somewhere in Africa, sort of in mid-Africa. Because um, even though Western countries, um, I mean, the church continues, well, let me put it this way, the nominal church, traditional Christianity is on the decline. Evangelical, Bible-believing Christianity is actually on the increase. But in the so-called global south, Christianity is exploding. Asia, Africa, it's just massive. Why is that so? It's because what God is saying here is true. I have reserved for myself people who will be faithful to me. Um, so a remnant is always reserved for God. Let's just go to, to Romans 11. I just want to read, because that's where Paul actually quotes this very passage um, from the Elijah story. And 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 in effect, preaches from it. I'm just going to read from, from verse 1 to, to 6. It says, 
I asked then, did God reject his people? Because he's talking about the fact that, that even though he's a Jew and many Jews have accepted Jesus as Messiah, many have rejected him. It says, did God then reject his people now? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved. See how, see how it's translated there? And I checked in the Greek. It's an aorist. It's a past tense verb. Okay? So that is the right way to, to translate it. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, in other words, if it were based on works, grace would no longer be grace. Powerful, powerful uh, passage. So, um, a remnant is always reserved because it is done Number one, it's done by God. God says, I have reserved for myself. And then he says, in the present day, as in Elijah's day, and we can say, in the present day, as in Paul's day, God also says, I have reserved for myself. And, and God will always reserve a remnant. That's a theme throughout Scripture. Even when, when, when God's people seem to be in danger of going extinct, God always reserves a remnant. And, it's, and God's people will never be, the remnant will always be there, always be reserved because it's done by God and it's done by grace. If it was done by us instead of by God, there would be the danger of extinction. But that's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. In Christianity, you have an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God reserving his people for himself. But, and the other thing is, it's done by grace. Even if God had, was the one doing it, doing the reserving... If it were done by works, we'd still be in trouble. Judaism would still have gone extinct. <laughs> Christianity would have gone extinct. Because if it were by works, in other words, if it were on merit, then no one would qualify. And that's the, that's the issue here. You see, Elijah thought he qualified. I've been zealous for the Lord. Everyone else hasn't. No one else qualifies, but I've been zealous for the Lord. And that is exactly where he was wrong. Um, therefore, like Elijah, you know, and this is what Elijah got wrong, but what that passage teaches us and what God tries to teach Elijah is that we should expect him to be working even what, when what we do doesn't seem to be working. And, and he mentions three people in whose lives he's going to work. He says, go back the way you came. Go and anoint Azahel, king of Aram, Syria. Jehu, king of Israel. And Elisha, as, you, as, as your successor, as prophet. Um, and this shows us three ways in which we should expect God to work, if this is true. If God is constantly working in, through his preserving grace. We should expect God to first work through Jehu's. In other words, Jehu was a king. He was not a prophet or a priest. He was not in a religious office. He was in a political office. But he was in a political office in Israel, God's chosen people, which was supposed to be a theocracy. So you expect God to work there. 
So we should expect God working not only spiritually, but also politically where we expect him to work. Okay? But then, before that, it says, go and anoint Hazael, king of Aram. This guy was not a believer. He was not a Jew. He became king over Syria. There's no evidence anywhere in the Bible that he ever converted. And yet, God sends Elijah to go and anoint him, king over Aram, over Syria. In other words, he's also a political leader. He's also working out there in the big world, overall politically big, big picture. But it's in a place that we wouldn't expect God to work at all. So God says, I work in the wider political sphere, in places you expect, and I work in places you don't expect at all. Daniel confirms this. He says, God is the one who gives, the, the kingdoms of the world belong to God, and he gives them to him he wishes. He gives them to him. God is working in ways that we don't even see. God was the one, now you're going to be offended at this, that, that allowed President Jacob Zuma to become president of South Africa, and he was the one that removed him and, and allowed President Cyril Ramaphosa to become president of South Africa. And God has his reasons why he did that. We don't always understand his reasons, we don't, but we might not even always like his reasons. But he has his reasons for doing that. But then, not only does God work in the big picture, in places we expect and places we don't expect, but he says, go and anoint Elisha as your successor, as prophet. In other words, God's always working spiritually. And God's always working spiritually to work us out of a job. To replace us. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and tell them, I'm, indis I'm, I'm not indispensable. <laughs> the reality is if like Elijah thought if like Elijah thought God's whole mission and work on earth depends primarily on me and my work then I'm indispensable but if God's work in the earth God's mission in the earth and God's people in the earth depends primarily on God's work God's reserving, then no one's indispensable. I'm certainly not indispensable. God can use anyone in any place. And that's what he wanted to teach Elijah. And the other thing that he, that he wanted to, to Elijah to see, uh, let me just maybe give a little testimony before I, I share that. Um, I actually think I put the picture up. Can you just bring up the, the photo? I don't know if you can see there. It's a window that's open and the blinds are being held op open by, a, by a, um, a rake, a leaf rake. That's what we found. Um, when was it? Which morning? Friday morning. Thursday morning. It was Thursday morning when, uh, when we woke up. We, we, the alarm went off. The, the, the electric fence alarm went off. So we jumped up and I was there all, you know, asleep, you know, trying to you know, punch in the, the code. Um, eventually got it right, and then I was like, you know, what's going on here? You know, and we sort of looked around. We didn't see anything. And then Rochelle, uh, Nancy Drew, we call her, <laughs> she noticed this. Someone had jumped, somehow jumped over our fence, and the putty on the on the window was still soft. So it scraped it off, pulled out the um, the glass, chucked it onto the, the 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 pool net, climbed in, stolen my laptop. Um, grabbed Rochelle's um, handbag with a, a wallet in, but he, he just left the wallet. There wasn't much money in, so he just left the wallet outside. Grabbed, 
grab Rochelle's, I grabbed Kirsten's um, school bag, because it, it's, it's like a backpack, black backpack bag, looks like a, like a laptop bag, thrown that out, when he saw it was full of books instead of laptop and so on, he emptied out the books onto the pool net, so we had to sit there with a hairdryer and dry them, and um, then took my laptop and put it into that bag, and, and then he took one of the kids' bicycles, chucked that over the fence, and that's when the alarm went off, and jumped over and, and drove off. But why I tell the story is he came in, we don't have, I mean, we have like a, our living area, you know, kitchen, lounge, you know, and, and, and so on, um, in one area, and then we have like a corridor going into the, the, the bedrooms and the bathrooms. We don't have one of those trelly doors, gates between those two, you know, at the beginning of the corridor. He could have just walked in there and he could have killed us, whoever the guy was or whoever the people, maybe there was more than one person, whoever they were, they, they were... We were lying there asleep and defenseless, and it was between 2 o'clock and half past 4 in the morning. But God, through His grace, preserved us. He preserved us. We wouldn't even have known if someone had come in and, and tried to do something to us. We wouldn't have known. But God's grace preserved us. And what God is saying in this passage is that even as He does that for us physically, He also does that for us spiritually. He preserves us spiritually from the things that would spiritually kill us and destroy us. And that's powerful. And some of the implications of this is that God always, like I said, works in us before He works through us. God's work in us always precedes God's work through us. And therefore, when God does work, does work through us, we cannot take any credit for it. And we have to give Him all the thanks and the glory for it. Even when we do get something right. Okay? Secondly, um, therefore, God, by grace, um, sorry, therefore, by grace, we never have to walk alone. Um, you saw the, the ad of, of um, John, Dr. John Andrews, who's going to come in, in, in beginning May, and I really want to um, encourage you to come. You know, it's, it's worth coming just for the accent. But, <laughs> but more than that, you know, you'll, you'll see the content that he's going to present. I mean, I've, um, I've listened to some of the stuff that he did. He's brilliant. He's really good. It's going to be worth Absolutely worth it. If you can, um, if you're really interested in, in leadership development and, and to grow as a leader and you're willing to put in some leave, you know, to come for the, for the second to the fourth and actually do those workshops during the day, you're welcome to do that. Just contact us, contact Shana. Um, but he's a big Liverpool supporter, John Andrews. He doesn't like Manchester United very much. <laughs> he likes Liverpool, okay? And one of the reasons, one of his justifications for this is he says, when you... Support Liverpool, you'll never walk alone. That's their slogan. Whereas the nickname of, of uh, Manchester United is, is the Red Devils. He said, now, if a Christian has to choose between those two, it's quite an obvious choice, you know. Red Devils, you'll never walk alone. <laughs> well, he's right. If God's reserving grace is a reality, you will never have to walk alone. God will always not only reserve you, because what God was so sort of imp- Subtly saying to Elijah, I've reserved 7,000. By the way, you're part of that 7,000. You know? The only reason you're worshipping me is because I've reserved you. But I've also reserved thousands of others like I've reserved you by my grace. I've reserved. And therefore, there will always be a community for you. There will always be the people of God that you can be part of. And Elijah was alone. The fact that Elijah was alone was his fault. Not God's fault. 
wasn't like, they, like he was the only one left, that there was no one else that he could fellowship with. There will always be someone to fellowship, if this is true, if God's reserving grace is a reality, as, as Paul says and as, as the writer of, of King says. You'll never have to walk alone. The only time you'll walk alone is if, in pride, like Elijah, you choose to walk alone. So therefore, like Elijah, we'll never walk alone. Uh, if we ever walk alone, it is our own fault. If, by grace, God has reserved for himself a remnant, now as then, according to Romans 11, how does this grace work? And that brings us to our third point. God's grace depends on the only one left. Elijah thought he was fully faithful. I've been zealous for the Lord. And he thought he was the only one left. But he was wrong on both counts. On the other hand, Jesus really was fully faithful. And he really was the only one left. In fact, he, was, he really was the only one who was ever fully faithful. There was no one else in the history of mankind that fully fulfilled the covenant of God, never rejected it, never um, uh, failed God, always obeyed the terms of the covenant, never had to, you know, give an atoning sacrifice. In fact, he became the atoning sacrifice, as we know. There was never anyone else like that. Only Jesus um, was fully faithful. And only Jesus really was the only one left. The last one left. Um, Elijah, and my wife says I'm too hard on Elijah. Um, she says, <laughs> I, highlight, I, I don't highlight his, his successes. I only highlight his failures. I, I highlight his failures more than his successes. And maybe she's right, but allow me to do it one more time. <laughs> Twice in chapter 19, verse 10 and verse 14, Elijah says to God, I'm the only one left. Twice. In the previous chapter, twice it says, in the beginning of the chapter, in fact, let me read that to you. Um, in 1 Kings 18, in verse 3, it says, um, Obadiah was a devout uh, believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 15 each, and had supplied them with food and water. And in verse 14, it says, uh, sorry, verse 13, it says the same thing. Obadiah himself says to Elijah, haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred um, of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 15 each, and supplied them with food and water. Twice Elijah says, I'm the only one left. In the previous chapter twice it says that a hundred other prophets were reserved and i think the writer of first kings says it both things twice because he wants us to notice the correlation there and the fact that shucks elijah is lying and he knows he's lying okay he's not telling the truth i don't know why where he's feeling sorry for himself or, or what the, the reason is um, the practical reason is, but I can tell you what the spiritual reason is. Because ask yourself, why do we ever lie? Because let's be honest with ourselves, we lie just like Elijah. Let's not you know, stand in judgment over, over him and shake our heads and like, Elijah, I, doch, man. Really, bad Christian, bad Christian, <laughs> bad Jew, bad Jew. You know, let, let's, not, let's not do it. We do the same. 
We lie just like Elijah. Why? Why do we lie? There, there are many reasons why we lie, but ultimately all of those reasons actually boil down to one reason. It's ironic that on Horeb, the mountain of God, Sinai, where the law was received, Elijah is now busy breaking that law. He's breaking the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false testimony. Right? He's breaking that commandment. But why is he breaking that commandment? It's because he's already broken the first commandment. Just like the rest of Israel. They've rejected your covenant. Remember that? Martin Luther was the one who said, we, d- we never break the other nine commandments unless we've first broken the first commandment. In other words, let me put it this way. We never tell a lie or steal or murder or whatever else, commit adultery, unless there's something in our lives that has become more important to us than God. Some idol. God commands us not to lie. God himself never lies. So why do we lie when we lie? It's because there's something that's more important to us than God. There's something that's more important to us than pleasing Him. There's something that's more important to us than relationship with Him. And it's ironic, at the very place where Moses received the law, Elijah is breaking the first and the third commandment and doing pretty much the same thing or a very similar thing to what the rest of Israel were doing. They were doing it much more explicitly with Paul. But what was the thing that to Elijah was more important than God? Yes, anyone? Himself, right? Can look how, how much he says, I, 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 I've been zealous. I've been faithful. I'm the only one left. I'm in danger of being killed. He, he maybe he doesn't realize it, but he seems to be idolizing himself. Now, like I said, Jesus never broke any of the commandments. He never broke the other nine because he never broke the first. He was the one who was always faithful to the Father, always faithful to the covenant. In other words, Jesus, listen to this. God always reserves for himself a remnant. Jesus was the remnant of one. He was the remnant of one, the ultimate remnant. The ultimate left, the, the, the last and the only faithful Israelite that ever lived. And just think about this. I mean, there are many ways in which I can, I can portray this. But in Gethsemane, Jesus, is, he's made this commitment in eternity to the Father. Father, yes, that, that cup of judgment, your, your judgment, that, the cup of your judgment that deserves to be poured out on your people because of their unfaithfulness, because they've rejected the covenant, because they've broken all the other nine commandments um, as a consequence of breaking the first, that cup of wrath, the terrible wrath of Almighty God, I'll drink that on their behalf. He made that promise in eternity. And, and then when he was faced with it, I mean, it's, it's intense, it's terrible. Think how terrible the wrath of God is if it even scares Jesus, who is God. Only God can bear the wrath of God. That's how incredibly terrible it is. Intense it is. His disciples forsake him. He comes back, they're praying and they fall asleep. And when when the enemy comes, they run away. And he really is left alone. 
completely alone. And then on the cross, he's not only physically alone, but he's cosmically alone because he has to hang there and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only does he suffer without any of his friends, he suffers without his father. The one who deserved not to be rejected, the only one who deserved not to be rejected, was actually rejected. Not because of his unfaithfulness, but because of his faithfulness to the father. He hung there and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the only one who ever really stood alone, even without God. Even without the father. He was rejected so that we never would have to be. He stood alone, even without God, so that we never would have to. So that, in other words, he is the one who really was the only one left. The only one left. So that he could earn the grace for us to be reserved and never have to be the only one left. Let me, let me put it this way. In, in Romans, um, Paul says, it's a remnant. God has reserved a remnant chosen by grace. And if it's by grace, it's not by work. He makes a big point of that. Did you notice that? You know, grace is only grace if it's not by work. But, but why can God reserve a remnant by grace? And what's reserve a remnant not by works, who don't work, is because Jesus, as a remnant of one, already did all the work. And that's why the gospel, like I always say, is good news about what has been done to save us, not good advice about what we must do to save ourselves. But here's the other thing. Those very same, and this is encouraging to me, those very same Paluka disciples who forsook him in Gethsemane and he'd quivering in the upper room, look at the transformation in their lives after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, they are these bold guys. They'd left Jesus to stand alone on Passover at the crucifixion. But all of a sudden, after Pentecost, after they received the Holy Spirit, after they've seen the resurrected Jesus, all of a sudden, they're bold as lions. They're standing up for him. They're being persecuted. They're being flogged. They're being threatened with death. And yet they stand firm and they stand together. And we can be like them too. If we can see Jesus who conquered when he stood alone, we can take courage from him and stand up for him and with him. If we can receive, I almost want to say, the secret to Jesus' success while he was on earth, which is the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed that he never did one miracle before he received the Holy Spirit? You notice that. There's a reason for that. Okay. Why was Jesus just in a different league from, from the disciples? Okay, he was God, but in his coming to earth and becoming human, he actually laid down the exercise, temporarily and voluntarily laid down the exercise of his divine attributes. He was living on earth as a human being, not as God, but he was living on earth as a human being filled with the Holy Spirit. All the miracles he did was in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we receive that secret of his success, we can also stand with him, inspired by his courage, inspired by the fact that he stood for us where we could never have stood for ourselves. We can stand for him in the smaller battles and be faithful to him by the power of his Spirit. Amen. This is very important. Elijah couldn't be honest couldn't be honest with himself and couldn't be honest about himself. He had to inflate his commitment to God. 
The good news is that the gospel is the only thing that sets us free from that. The gospel says to us, we don't have to be, we don't have to deserve to be loved by God. We don't have to deserve to be reserved by God. God does it by grace. He does it apart from our works. He does it, in fact, despite our wrong works. And that, listen to this, this is very important, that sets us radically free to be honest with ourselves and about ourselves. The gospel is the only thing that sets you free to be brutally honest about your weaknesses because your relationship with God no longer depends on it. You can, you can safely admit your weaknesses and your sins because God will love you despite them. Can you see how radically freeing this is? But it can only happen if, there's, if we put God in the first place. If we say, God, I trust you as my God. You, the loving God. You, the graceful, reserving God. You are my God and nothing other, nothing else. I don't want to be more important in my own life than you are. Lord, we just come to you and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us do that. That you will, like you did for, for the Israelites, reserve us, Lord. Preserve us from bowing the knee uh, to Baal and kissing Baal. That we'll worship no one else. And that the gospel by which, by, of grace by which you saved us will set us free to be a community that's radically honest with ourselves and with one another. Because there's a safe place to do it in. In Jesus' name. And Lord, I just bless your people as they go. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.